Welcome to the Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia, and our guide on this journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where sustainable investing is heading in the future. In this episode, we're going to dig into a new study about stranded assets in the power and energy industry that reveals some stark revelations about what those could mean in the battle against climate warning. And fund flows are rolling back into ESG and socially responsible funds after a multi-month drought. We follow the money right here on The Green Investor. But first, let's set some ground rules for this podcast. And this podcast, as always, is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast. But all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Let's do some news, shall we? Sarah Bloom Raskin, President Biden's pick as the top bank regulator at the Federal Reserve, said this week she is withdrawing her candidacy to the Fed following opposition from West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who said he would not support her nomination. Raskin has been an outspoken advocate of addressing the risks that global warming pose to the world's financial systems. Without the support of Manchin, who continues to hold powerful sway over the 50-50 split U.S. Senate, Raskin's nomination had little chance of passing. Australia's federal court overturned a ruling that could have forced the environment minister to consider the impacts of climate change on young people when assessing new fossil fuel projects. The court reversed a verdict from last year that said Australia's environmental minister, Suzanne Lay, owed children a duty of care when assessing a new coal mine in a case brought against the government by several teenagers and sister Marie Bridget Arthur, an 86-year-old nun in Australia. Lay had appealed an earlier ruling that ordered the government to assess potential harmful consequences on young people that would be caused by additional greenhouse gas emissions when deciding whether to approve Whitehaven Coal's proposed extension of a new South Wales coal mine. Investors added over $886 million to some of the biggest exchange-traded funds that invest in clean energy last week as the U.S. and Europe took steps to cut dependence on Russian fossil fuels. The European Union recently announced that it would speed up its timetable for adding wind and solar power to help its countries wean themselves off of Russian supplies by the year 2027. President Biden's announcement last week that the U.S. would ban all oil imports from Russia sent solar and wind stocks and ETFs soaring. Investors added about $500 million to two funds that track the S&P Global Clean Energy Index, the London-listed iShares Global Clean Energy ETF, and the American equivalent iShares Global Clean Energy ETF. Some of the fund's biggest holdings include wind turbine giants Vestas Wind Systems and solar power equipment maker Enphase Energy. The European Central Bank is pushing lenders to disclose more information on the climate and environmental risks they face after finding that just 15% publish data on the emissions they finance. The ECB has told banks to take, quote, decisive action, saying this week that only around half of institutions release relevant performance or risk data. The watchdog expects to see major progress by year end, according to a top official. So who's passing the most gas? Germany, which emitted more greenhouse gases last year than expected and has now missed its own emissions targets for two straight years. Europe's largest economy released the equivalent of about 762 million tons of carbon dioxide in 2021, a 4.5% increase from the previous year, mainly due to higher emissions from the energy sector, according to Germany's Economy and Climate Ministry. 
Some of the roughly $40 billion in Russian foreign currency debt now at risk of default is held by a group of ESG funds that are designed to invest in so-called sustainable assets. This is according to Bloomberg. The Article 8 funds, as they're known, which is a category under Europe's environmental, social, and governance investing rules, hold about $800 million of bonds issued by the government of Vladimir Putin that have a coupon payment due this week. Russia is at risk of defaulting on its own foreign currency denominated debt for the first time since the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. With gas prices skyrocketing in recent days given the Russian invasion into Ukraine, U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, the Democrat from Rhode Island, has introduced the big oil windfall profits tax to curb profiteering by oil companies and provide Americans relief at the gas pump. Under White House's bill, large oil companies that produce or import at least 300,000 barrels of oil per day, or did back in 2019, will owe a per-barrel tax equal to 50% of the difference between the current price of a barrel of oil and the pre-pandemic average price per barrel between 2015 and 2019. That's a period when big oil companies were already earning large profits, according to the statement on the bill. The quarterly tax will apply to both domestically produced and imported barrels of oil to ensure a level playing field. Smaller companies, accounting for roughly 70% of the domestic production, will be exempt. Revenue raised from the windfall profits of big oil companies will be returned to consumers in the form of a quarterly rebate, which would phase out for single filers who earn more than $75,000 in annual income and joint filers who earn more than $150,000. At $120 per barrel of oil, the levy would raise approximately $45 billion per year, according to the bill. And at that price, single filers would receive approximately $240 each year, and joint filers would receive $360 every year. It's just a bill, as they say on Schoolhouse Rock, and it still needs approval from the Senate and the House of Representatives, which is not so easy these days. We'll link to that bill in the show notes. The fossil fuel industry finds itself in a catch-22, and unfortunately, the only result may be bad news for global warming and for oil investors. While the industry is slowly transitioning itself away from fossil fuel extraction, it's not ramping up its carbon abatement technologies fast enough to prevent hundreds of billions of dollars worth of stranded assets. Those are the findings of a recent research paper that was published in Nature Communications, co-authored by Yang Siyu Lu at the University of Oxford and Francois Cohen, an assistant professor of economics at the University of Barcelona. Francois Cohen joins us now to break down this report and what it means for the Paris Agreement, for these companies, and for the planet. Thank you for joining The Green Investor, Francois. Uh, Well, thank you for having me here. In simple terms, and I know it's not simple, I read your paper, explain the key conclusion of your report which, folks, we're going to link to in the show notes. It's pretty dense. But, Francois, give it to us as basically as you can. Okay, well, what we can do with the information at hand is to sum up all the capacity of power plants worldwide and also add to this capacity the capacity of plant per point for the the few years. And we can compare this to what electricity generation can come from fossil fuels um, according to different scenarios that are compliant, consistent with the two Celsius degree limit of the Paris Agreement. So when we compare this stock of capacity for power generation with scenarios that are consistent with limiting climate change, what we find is that we have too many power plants and we are planning to build too many power plants around the world. So the general message of the paper. Yeah, so we're going the wrong way because we continue to build the power plants to produce energy that also consume a lot of energy. Meanwhile, we're racing against the clock and trying to keep 
temperatures below this two degrees Celsius, which many people don't even think is going to be possible. The upshot, though, for the power industry and for those folks who have invested, and we're talking about institutional investors, we're also talking about companies who keep pouring tens of billions of dollars into these plants. What does the scenario look like five, 10 years from now? So, well, there may be some form of short-term profitability for investing in these plants, but longer term, what we know is that globally, as soon as we want to deal with climate change, some of these plants will have to be stranded. And a general argument that has been uh, given in uh, this uh, field is to say, well, but uh, we may not have to strand these assets because we can invest in technologies, especially carbon capture and storage. We can try to make plant conversions, start using more gas in coal-fired power plants. And what we find is even when we add up the potential for these different technologies according to different scenarios, what we, we observe is that there is still a clear risk of what we call stranded assets, which are well, basically assets that won't be usable simply because there are, well, there are too many of them if we want to avoid climate change, which is what countries have been saying with the Paris Agreement. When you speak of these carbon abatement technologies, what specifically are you referring to and, and who's using those effectively today? So I'm talking about coal to gas, so conversions from coal to gas. So that could be a dual fuel use in power plants, so co-firing of coal with gas, for example. We are looking at the use of so bioenergy, so the use of wood pellets instead of coal, as well as carbon capture and storage. So at the moment, so a lot of plants have been using gas instead of coal in the U.S., especially because gas is quite cheap relatively in the U.S. This is less common in other countries. When it comes to bioenergy, there has been some investments in different countries to start doing this, but this is, we are not really there using uh, wood pellets instead of coal in, in most places. And finally, carbon capture and storage is a technology that we think that uh, we will be able to upscale sooner or later, but so far it's not at the commercialization stage. You're an economist, Francois. You've been watching the madness in oil prices lately and the domino effect it has had on calls for more production on the one hand from the oil companies and calls for a faster transition to renewable energy on the other, specifically in Europe, which now wants to accelerate its transition to renewables given its reliance on oil. How does this play out from your point of view as an economist? Well, I mean, this can only be my personal opinion, which is that we need to push for uh, renewable energy if we want to achieve stronger energy security in uh, Europe. So I'm I'm European, I'm French. And clearly, we depend on uh, fossil fuels that are basically extracted abroad, uh, outside of the European Union. And, And this has been a challenge for Europe for decades. Right now, there is a very strong investment package that the European Union wants to implement. And the idea is basically to have more renewables and these renewables we can we can build at home. So, I mean, we can install them at home. So it, it would clearly reduce our reliance on uh, fossil fuels from Russia in the present case and, and possibly also pacify our relations with, with this country in fact, because we would be less reliant on them. So we would have a stronger uh, negotiating power over what they do. Let's talk about stranded assets a little bit more because it's such an important economic principle, but it's also a balance sheet matter, right? We're talking about infrastructure, whether that's power plants, whether that's oil rigs, whether that's pipes under the ground, or whether that's the oil itself. Give me a sense of the magnitude of the dollar amount of the stranded assets that could be sitting out there 5, 10, 15 years from now. So for the electric sector, it's about 10 times global electricity production in 2018 that we think should be stranded. So it's a massive amount. 
difficult to give an exact dollar value because it would depend on the, the cost of electricity and the projections about the, the cost of electricity. But basically, we are, we are talking like in, in terms of billions of dollars here. When we think about stranded assets, so we, the, the paper is just about electricity generation, but in general, climate change increases the risk that some assets in, in all sectors may be stranded simply because some uh, sectors are particularly vulnerable to climate change. And as a result of their climate change vulnerability, their balance sheet may, may be strongly affected in the future. So if you think that some, uh, for example, agricultural products are very dependent on the weather, then naturally, I mean, we may not have the right information as investors to know when we're investing in this type of company, are we making the right investment? Because in the future, climate change may happen and may completely affect the profits of specific companies. So this is a massive problem that goes much beyond the case of uh, electric uh, companies, even though uh, these, these companies are, are very much uh, dependent on uh, what policies will be uh, implemented when it comes to climate change mitigation. Put on your behavioral economics hat for a second and imagine that you're one of the CEOs or you're an executive in one of these big power companies or one of these big oil companies. You know that in the future, you're going to have to transition just because that's the way the world is going. At the same time, you're watching right now, oil prices topped $139 a barrel. They've come way down from that. But if you're thinking about demand destruction and about the things that drive us to make decisions given our behavior as economic animals... What are the questions you're asking yourself if you're in that seat? So I think for these companies, the question is, how can they achieve this at a lesser cost to them? So they are already committing to net zero emissions by uh, 2050. I mean, uh, that you, you have like a lot of oil and gas companies that have made these commitments. The question to them is how to ensure that they can sustain profits while they make the transition. So if I were a CEO of one of these companies, I would have the question of climate change risk and climate change litigation risks as well very, very clear because we see that some countries are taking legal action against companies that don't comply with, are not consistent with the Paris Agreement. So I would have this in the back of my, my head. So the, the question is all about what you do as an investor. Are you investing maybe short term to get like short term benefits because all prices are very high and so on? So you get a return, but it may be at the expense of longer term. These, these investments, they, they may not have the longer term uh, profitability that you would expect from them. So it's all about a, a matter of calculating these things right. And probably there is some confidence in the oil and gas industry in providing these revenues because we've seen them providing these revenues for decades. And therefore, we may expect them to perform better than they may uh, perform in the future, especially when they are confronted with structural change. So this is a bit my take. And when we see that, in fact, things are going very fast when it comes to renewables. So we've seen like drastic reductions in renewables that uh, for instance, electric companies were not anticipating. It may make us think, well, maybe we need to start really investing big dollars in your case or big euros in, in our case in Europe in these technologies. I mean, in Europe, what has been happening, for example, is that electricity companies, traditionally monopolies when, before they, they liberalized, they hadn't anticipated the, the rise in uh, renewables. And this has implied some costs to them. So I think these things, they, they are really tangible and they are happening now. And and not in, in 20 years. Well, Europe seems to have a little bit more of a woke sensibility to the importance of climate change. At least the regulations are a little bit more clear and a little bit tighter. And certainly on the banking side and on the investing side, ESG regulations, ESG rules and terms, they're a lot more clear than they might be here in the US. Do you feel like that Europe has the sensibility to make these changes fast enough 
to help keep up with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement? Or is Europe just like the United States trying to make it through this cycle of economic recovery into the next cycle? From European declarations, it's clear that when it comes to the green recovery, there has been more said and probably there will be more done than in the US, even though, well, we never know. I mean, things are changing so fast that we never know what one country will implement or another. But clearly, Europe has taken the lead on this. It may come as well from the fact that, well, we have a different uh, situation with respect to energy security. So we we depend on uh, Russian gas. And in the case of the US, there is shell gas that is being exploited and and Americans depend less on on, uh, Russian gas. So for sure, you know, our geostrategic position of Europe is very different. Having said so, there is a general trend in the reduction of renewables, uh, in the cost of renewables anyway. So even in the US, there is a moment when the rational choice will be to invest in these technologies because they, they are catching up very fast. Let's talk about the reaction to your paper, which, uh, again, was published in Nature Communications. Pretty dense paper, but it did wake a lot of people up to the fact that we're continuing to head down the wrong path. Have you received any backlash or, or any follow from the paper since it came out in Nature Communications? Well, it's very soon to say this because the research time is different from the journalistic time. So for now, the paper has been out for about a month and we haven't received strong backlash. When it comes to stranded assets, it's now generally accepted that this is the problem. And I think companies are taking this very seriously. When it comes to making, uh, so the scenarios that we're taking, they are widely accepted scenarios. So we're not making any assumption there that uh, people can really cr- heavily criticize, even though you know scenarios and projections are always open to critics because uh, naturally these are projections. What I think is question of, of utmost importance for investors is, well, considering that there are all these risks, and uh, some of these risks, we are in a situation of deep uncertainty when it comes to investing in, in these in these fuels because people don't really know how fast these things are go- going to happen and how fast the assets could be losing out. In contrast, the uncertainty in favor of renewables is it's, it's a positive, you know, because the faster the transition, the more profitable these assets will be. So I think, you know, if you, if you make a rational balance, I'm not so sure that uh, investing in fossil fuels will, will be the, the right choice for you. So naturally, I mean, it's a difficult thing to say, uh, speaking generally, because, you know, investments have to be studied on a case-by-case basis. Beyond this, and I know you look at a broader scope of things in your work, both as a professor and as a researcher, what's another thing that folks aren't really paying attention to that they need to that will become a major issue as it re- relates to climate change and industry going forward in the next five to 10 years? What's nobody talking about that you think people need to pay attention to today? Well, the costs of climate change will accumulate and they are going to accumulate quite fast. We're already seeing them, but for a very long time, because of how the climate system works, a lot of the temperature increases happened at sea. So you couldn't really see this really happening. But now the Earth has reached a point where any increase in greenhouse gas emission is going to translate into increases in temperature. And what I therefore want to say to investors is take into account climate change risk and ask companies to disclose information about climate change risks because these risks exist and they are not already fully disclosed. And you may be making the wrong investment simply because you're unaware of the potential liabilities that may come from climate change. We're starting to see more rules around disclosure, but much more serious in Europe, and hopefully those will 
will come across the pond to these shores as well. Folks, Francois Cohen, the Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Barcelona, thanks so much for joining The Green Investor and breaking down your recent report. You're welcome. That report, again, was co-authored by Yangtze Liu, Stephen Smith, and Alexander Pfeiffer at the University of Oxford, Smith School of Enterprise, and the Environment. Again, we'll share the link to that report in the show notes on investopedia.com slash The Green Investor Podcast. It's time for Green Facts, where we dig into facts and figures that teach us something new about the industries we follow closely here on The Green Investor. And this week's facts are about coal and methane emissions. According to a new report from Global Energy Monitor, methane emissions from coal mines worldwide exceed those from the global oil or gas sectors and are significantly higher than prior estimates by the Environmental Protection Agency. Ryan Driscoll-Tate, the report's author, found that coal mining emits 52 million metric tons of methane per year, more than is emitted from either the oil sector, which emits 39 million tons, or the gas industry, which emits 45 million tons. Methane, which is the primary component of natural gas, is a potent greenhouse gas and the second leading driver of climate change after carbon dioxide. On a unit-per-unit basis, methane is more than 80 times as powerful at warming the planet as carbon dioxide over its first 20 years in the atmosphere. Let's put this into a little perspective. Methane emissions from coal mining worldwide are comparable to the carbon dioxide emissions from burning coal at over 1,100 coal-fired power plants in China over the near term, according to the report. China, which is the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter, derived more than 60% of its power in 2020 from burning coal, compared to about 19% in the United States. In Europe, it's closer to 15% and falling every year. From 2018 to 2020, the EU reduced its consumption of both hard coal and brown coal by a third, according to the International Energy Administration. It's time to unpack the acronym where we deconstruct the alphabet soup that we swim in here as green investors. And this week, our acronyms, yes, there are two, are CCS and CCUS. Those stand for Carbon Capture and Storage or Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage, CCUS. They refer to a suite of technologies that involve the capture of CO2 from large point sources, including power generation or industrial facilities that use either fossil fuels or biomass for fuel. The CO2 can also be captured directly from the atmosphere. If not being used on site, the captured CO2 is compressed and transported by pipeline, ship, rail, or truck to be used in a range of applications or injected into deep geological formations, including depleted oil and gas reservoirs, which trap the CO2 for permanent storage. You'll often hear about carbon capture and storage by an energy company as a way to offset emissions or earn credits to offset emissions, but that market is under more regulatory scrutiny because, well, the sale of captured carbon for either storage or reuse is simply not regulated. Energy or power companies can claim how much carbon they're capturing and even sell it back to the market, but there aren't a lot of rules in place or watchdogs keeping an eye on that CO2. Keep an eye on CCS and CCUS going forward. More rules are likely coming. We'll go out this week as we do looking back at this week in environmental history. And we're going to go all the way back to 1903 when the Pelican Island Bird Preserve was named by President Theodore Roosevelt. The three-acre island and surrounding waters are part of the Everglades Headwaters Complex located just off the western coast of the North Hutchinson Island and the Indian River Lagoon east of Sebastian, Florida. The executive order marks the beginning of the creation of the U.S. wildlife refuge system, which by 1909 will include 42 million acres of national forests, 53 national wildlife refuges, and 18 areas of special interest, including the Grand Canyon. But it always starts with the birds. 
Thanks for joining us this week on The Green Investor. We'll post a transcript of today's episode with links to all the reports we cited on investopedia.com slash the Green Investor Podcast. We appreciate you listening and would love it if you left a review and some stars, a lot of stars on our show page. If you really want to make us happy, recommend the show to your network with the share tools if you think it's worthy. We would also love your feedback, good or bad. It makes us better. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a fresh episode. In the meantime, keep it green and thanks for joining us. 